0: Hey, I'm here with John, and uh, today we're going to talk about um, Balthazar and Bart and uh, a little bit about the analogy entus, the uh, under, misunderstanding, but hopefully we'll go beyond simply the misunderstanding. Uh, I think John is going to spell out for us a, a positive uh, idea that is there in Balth- that Balthazar, Chavara, uh one that can uh that every theological understanding can benefit from uh a little bit john lay out then for us what is the what is uh the problem uh between bart and balthazar and then we can talk okay. about how the problem's resolved
1: yeah and so to explain um the conver- I, The way I think about it is the conversation between Balthazar and Karl Barth is one of the most fruitful for Orthodox theologians. I mean, just little people who are taking traditional Christianity seriously in the 20th century. And so in a way, this is taking up what some have called a Kierkegaardian trajectory. So it's a theology that is questioning the myth of the secular and the myth of modernity. So at the core, I think what Balthazar and Barth have in common and what is their starting point is that they're both saying that theology is fundamental for what it means to be human and that theology is as basic to explaining the human condition as any other uh, field of study. So it's not like biology, in some way, has a better grasp of what it means to be a human being than theology does. And so that not that theology would replace biological studies, but that both are apt at understanding uh, what it, the human experience means. But even more than that, probably is that they're claiming that theology is the broadest horizon upon which all these other fields of study make sense. And that's because theology has a way of talking about, uh, you know, being, but not just in what Heidegger would have called an theological way, but really trying to describe what it, what is the meaning of existence? Uh, what does it mean for us to be here and for our lives to be the way that they are? That meaning, a bit in flux or changing. Why do we grow? Uh, what place does death have? What uh, comes next? Those type of questions theology is going to answer best, and so that's a similarity between Bart and Balthazar. and that's an odd similarity to have at the beginning of the twentieth century because Protestant well, liberalism. Go ahead.
0: Well, let me let me see right. if I can state this in another way. Uh, that if I'm understanding. But you would characterize Barth's theology as Christocentric. Uh, That what comes out later in a kind of post-liberal appreciation of Barth, and maybe a radical orthodox extension of that understanding, uh, is the idea that that human understanding of final truth or, or foundational truth is not to be found outside of a theological context.
1: Yeah, So, but that doesn't just rest on um, a Christocentrism. That rests on their approach to how are they going to think about reality. It really is almost a methodological shift that people are leaving Protestant liberalism, which is saying that theology maybe really just ought to be doing history uh, or ethics and try to fit in in between these other fields of study who that most people at that time had considered to be primary. And then there's the methodological shift to say, no, theology is as fundamental, basic, and primary as any field of study in addressing the human situation. So now then how do you a, do that? Go ahead.
0: Well, explain a little bit then uh, why the objection uh, to a Christocentrism
1: well i don't i don't necessarily have an objection and i don't think there's an objection either in bart or balthasar but i wouldn't want to flatten that into just one type of christocentrism because what you have in luther who most people think of being sort of the originator of a christocentric theology is a really anti-metaphysical theology and fits well into these categories of nominalism and voluntarism that we've spoken about in other podcasts. And there's always a danger of falling into that. So that saying, when we're talking about Christ, all we can talk about is the experience of Jesus Christ in the Gospels. And there's no opening there to talking about the state of the cosmos or even what it means to be human in reference to God uh, eternally or what is the refer- what is the relation between finitude and infinitude. And so I, there is a type of Christocentrism that falls into those errors. I don't think that's what you have in Bart's mature theology. And, of course, Balthazar is reacting against that.
0: And Balthazar then, and of course we've discussed previously, but let's restate that Bart is going to call the analogiantus the Antichrist. And uh, Balthazar's point is well, no, you've misunderstood that in fact uh, what you're accusing the analogiantus, the analogy of being, uh, that in fact what you're accusing it of doing is precisely what it is not doing and what it is protecting against.
1: Yes. Yeah. And the significance of that conversation, I think it's wiser to remember that Bart and Balthazar were having this conversation as friends who were going on vacations with each other and uh, hanging out quite a bit. So it wasn't a academic confrontation of the sort that would spark a debate. This was a part of an ongoing conversation And it really has to do with the type of ecumenicism that people wanted to engage in in the 20th century. So I think there's even been a shift in that, that in the early 20th century and maybe even up through Vatican II, uh, that's when you start seeing all the types of world councils of Christians getting together. The first ecumenical agenda was really to merge, for denominations to come together and merge into new uh, one, you know, much larger denomination. But now we don't really think that way. Usually what ecumenicism means is just that we would work together with other denominations and that we would say, well, there's always going to be these issues that we can't overcome. Well, but you have to remember, Barth was writing in the former context. And so his phrase about the intus being the invention of the Antichrist actually has to do with him giving a reason for why he can't become Roman Catholic. And he says that all other reasons would be trivial to his mind. So it's not just that he decided to pick on this doctrine and say that it's erroneous or even that he thinks that, um, you know, it's super problematic for Catholicism. But the way he approaches condemning the intus is by saying this is the reason why he could never become Roman Catholic. And I think what he's describing actually is a larger rift between Reformed theology and um, well, what I would just call traditional Orthodox theology, but Roman Catholicism at that time, and so that's the context of Bart's rejection. And Balthasar is going to come back, also thinking along ecumenical lines, and say, "Well, actually, I don't think this is a problem." And what is key is that both Bart and Balthasar are in agreement that the analogia entis and the obediential potency, which is uh, in some sense a part of or a manifestation of the analogia entis is key and central to Roman Catholic theology okay, and uh, just the life of the church.
0: Yeah, let's uh, define some terms here. That yeah. de- define how the relationship between the obediential potency, the analogia entis, and why that is key.
1: So, obediential potency or potentia obedientialis is a Latin phrase that is all over Roman Catholic theology in different contexts. And that's where this can get confusing quickly, because I think at one time, most normatively the obediential potency was a way of describing how transubstantiation works in Holy communion. But Shavara is going to take up this term and redefine it. And I think it's it's debatable whether Thomas Aquinas ever uses it as a technical term in the way that Shavara does. But Shavara is taking his definition from questions in the Summa Theologia, And so that's important as well. So he's making this term more technical than perhaps it was in medieval theology to describe something that they were already doing. And what it has to do with in the way Shavara is using it is the way that humans have uh, a nature or something about them that is intelligible, or humanity is intelligible in and of itself because God created it that way. And so it's always in some type of relationship of creation, but there is an intelligibility simply to say that human beings can do things or uh, that are good, or there are good things about human beings that are distinct from God's goodness, but are still an imitation of God's goodness. So that's simply to say that it's not the same goodness. And that's over and against a type of uh, Greek belief, and you get an opposite that makes the same error in later Protestantism, that in some way either God, and Shavara calls this pantheism, though it's not. Truly Eastern uh, pantheism, either that God has created by emanating creation from himself in such a way that creation isn't distinct or separate from God, and Shavar is going to say that's the the error of pantheism. he also thinks that's the error of a lot of natural theology is to try to claim that there's some innate part of God within us that we can discover naturally of our natural potential. So As far is going to say no to that.
0: Then the point is that the power of obedience is the proper proportion to finitude that is that we can uh that we can be good not in the sense of a direct uh uh deification or or the idea that god is there but that it it's through image-bearing? Is that the idea, that being true to the image in which we are created, or have I missed it entirely?
1: Well, no, I think that's right, but we're not quite there yet. And uh, the obediential potency with Latin terms, it's not. It's definitely a cognate with the way we use modern obedience, but they're not synonymous. And so there's a little bit more entailed, or it's nuanced a little bit differently. But So that the one error that Shavara wants to stay away from which he already sees aquinas and albert the great are coming up with ways to say that there's a distinction between a natural order and a supernatural order this is where god does divine things but they don't think that they're separate in the sense that so they're distinct but they're not separate in a, in the sense that they would exist in and of themselves separately so this is the error that you get later on um in the 1500s actually you you first start to see this error with william of ockham and john duns scotus but by the time you get to vatican one you have people talking about a separate and complete natural end so that things have a natural end and then they have a supernatural end that is added on top of that and this is where the ressourcement uh, theologians come in and say, no, that's not what anybody was saying in the Middle Ages or during the patristic period. And this, but thing, rather... this thing was called pure nature. Yes, that's pure nature. Uh, I don't want to quite define that yet either, but to simply to say that the shift in what chavara is trying to accomplish uh, in redefining or picking up a, def- a medieval definition of the obediential potency is to say that the natural order is intelligible, but it's grounded in the supernatural order. So ultimately, its meaning is all going to be held in the supernatural order, though it has an intelligibility in and of itself. Well, that would mean that the natural order is open, and that's the word that he uses, is just open to a supernatural end. What he doesn't think, and this is perhaps what Bart misunderstands, is he doesn't think that in any way that... There are natural means to accomplish that supernatural end. Okay, so this, it's, is, this is
0: key, right? I mean, yeah, that, yeah. This what, is a- so, what you're describing is there was an understanding that apparently even Neo thomas bought into that Bart may, in fact, be identifying a problem. He may just be locating it in the wrong place. And that oh, is. Oh,
1: no, no. The Neo Thomists would have just disagreed. So, the Neo. <laughs> What Neotomists were doing is exactly what Bart is arguing against. That's but they point, know they're yeah. arguing for yeah,
0: yeah. That that, and in this understanding, there is the idea that given creation, that is, that we're all created uh, in a, you know, uh, Aquinas's notion for the beatific vision, and that in some way that that in this misunderstanding of a pure nature, that we have. We are enabled to uh, accomplish what we were created for purely in and through a naturally given means. That's the misunderstanding. And well, it's not.
1: That. Yeah, I mean, it's not so much that they were saying that people could naturally. Nobody was ever saying that you could naturally accomplish the beatific vision or that you could naturally accomplish this supernatural end. That was never stated. What they were doing was drawing a hard division between the natural order and the supernatural order and saying that there are some things in the natural order that humans accomplish completely by themselves, and then God does what is in the supernatural order completely along his own lines of power. So it's actually much closer to Calvinism than um, it would be to um, a—it's a modern— Catholic theology that is, so it's got all the issues of modernity, but it's much more closer to a Calvinism than to a modernity expressed via a, a Protestant liberalism. So the, no Catholic was ever teaching that you are going to, in and of your own natural capabilities, exper- uh, cause the divine end. The problem is they weren't allowing for any cooperation. So there was no cooperative grace between God affecting or actualizing this obediential potency in the lives of a finite being. And then the finite being truly participating in that actualization uh, as as both an effect of their salvation, but also affecting salvation. Does that make sense?
0: Uh, (laughs) I think that there is a, that there is a nuance there, but let's, let's emphasize it. Uh, The, in uh, an understanding of pure nature the idea is that we've been get, we're created in god's image and part of what it means to be created in god's image uh, is that this is something that we can fulfill uh maybe through a naturally given grace but the no, understanding- see, that's
1: not that's not right that's not right that's pure nature is the idea that there are human ends that human free will can accomplish in and of itself and these ends can be goods for us without and that those good. exist yeah com- yeah completely in another realm from grace but in no way is that connected to any kind of supernatural end but so it's calvinistic in the sense that it's only by god's will that any or only by god's power that any supernatural end is going to happen in our lives and there's not going to be any participation
0: and the, the the problem of course and that that Bart is identifying the antis as the Antichrist, is that there is the presumption that merely by human ends and then you end you end up with a church that uh has given itself over to, you know, uh national socialism, and his point is yeah, it's done this because there is the presumption that this is being worked out in and through a uh, 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 human power uh, yeah. that is, is, in fact, uh, not—it's <laughs> pure evil in his estimation.
1: Yeah, so what Bart saw in the Intus was the doctrine of pure nature, but is also just the same thing that Protestant liberalism was doing. And so he thought that what was happening was Shavara was saying, hey, we can talk about God in a way that makes sense to us. But what ends up happening if you do that isn't that you have a conversation about a truly transcendent God, but you would make a God look just like yourself. And so Bart doesn't think the problem is that in some way the Analogiantus is allowing humans as finite beings to work their way up to God who is a transcendent infinite being. He thinks that the problem was that it's completely obliterating or negating any kind of transcendent god and that what you're left with is just uh you know humanity who is fashioning god in their own image and he is right about the effects
0: of pure nature but wrong yes. then
1: only where he's assigning who's doing that Yes, yeah, so that's not what the analogiantus is doing, and that's not what the obediential potency is doing, but perhaps there was a Catholic theology that would would fall into that trap. Now there have been people who have written very interesting things about pure nature and saying, no, it's actually always just a hypothetical, and it doesn't uh, it doesn't fall into those errors, but that's probably another conversation. And so how does obediential
0: potency bring a corrective, or at least a, a proper understanding, bring a corrective to that misunderstanding.
1: So the obediential potency is the thing, the doctrine that perhaps Balthazar thinks Bart has taken up in his later works. So church dogmatics volumes uh, two and on. Uh, and the way Balthazar counts them is different than the way we do, just because the way they were published then. them. So Balthazar, I guess I would say volume three and on, but it's if you get a it would be volume two, part one and two and on. Uh, that may be confusing to those who are listening. I, I apologize. But anyway, so there there's after two books had been published or uh, at least two parts had been published, Balthazar sees a shift in Bart's work. and that's that Bart begins to talk about an openness in the create in the creature and in creation, for the reception of revelation. But of course, in Barth's theology, revelation is salvation. When you tie those two things together, Balthazar sees in Barth's work then a turn to the openness in the creature for God to actualize a potential to understand, uh, maybe understand is too strong, but to in some way begin to understand the things of God. To live in them and to grow in them. The obediential potency, strictly speaking, in Catholic theology, is just describing an openness in the creature for God to actualize this potential so that the creature then would participate in God's grace so that human actions have real meaning. Now, what's in Catholic theology that isn't articulated in Bart's theology probably simply because Bart wasn't trained the same way, is that even when human beings or finite creatures participate in God's grace to the end of salvation, those actions, because they are finite, uh, have a very limited scope of their effect. So they are effectual, I mean, they're efficient, but it's not as if even according to God's grace that human beings can set their own end for themselves. As being God, so God is still doing that, but humans are being faithful to what God is doing in their lives. That's what the obediential potency is describing. But I assume, well, you need, I assume but, Bart is not using
0: that language, though, or is he?
1: Uh, no, I don't believe so. He's not. Uh, using somebody that. might, but you know, I, you almost need an expert on Bart to make sure that's the case. But I don't. I don't think so. No. So he's not. He, but what Balthazar is
0: identifying in Bart. Is the equivalent of obediential potency.
1: That's right. So the idea is manifest in Bart's theology. So that Balthasar is saying, well, actually, Bart, uh,
0: you uh, are agreeing with the
1: true understanding of analogy That's right. So once you have made this turn to obediential potency, then you need the analogientist to make sense of this. Because you have to be able to talk about how human both actions and knowledge have significance, but is still on a different order of being than God's being. And that's what's happening in the entis. So Shavara develops the idea of the Analogiantus. Again, this is a term that comes out of medieval theology. It doesn't ever appear in Thomas Aquinas, but the idea that Shavara is um, capturing is definitely in Thomas Aquinas' work. The, the word itself appears a little bit later. It's in Cajetan. Uh, it's in his commentaries on Thomas Aquinas. But... Shavara is actually redefining it. So he would say that Cajetan and Suarez probably weren't reading Aquinas correctly. It's also a word that had been used in um, like as a technical term to describe Catholic orders and how they relate to the the church, the main church, the Catholic church. So it's, it is an idea that is prevalent in Catholicism, and that's perhaps why Shavara takes it up. But he wants to uh, develop it and to describe it in a way that is addressing metaphysical theology and overcoming, of course, the issues that he would see in the late neo-scholastic uh, manualist traditions that you have around Vatican I and afterwards.
0: And the point of all this is that uh, Bart and Balthazar agree we need to pre- uh, that, that theology cannot just simply be pantheism, or nor can it uh in some way uh you know the there there the connectedness between God and humans is uh in antis is uh saying that yes, God is God, we're not, and here's a way of describing that in my simplistic understanding.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, that's exactly right. And so there is of course the other um the other error that Shavara is trying to avoid that he thinks is in Bart's early theology. Balthazar thinks it may be in Bart's early dialectical theology, but it's it's there, it's not completely consistent throughout, so that Bart is already on a trajectory towards being able to accept some way of analogy, which of course Bart famously does with his analogia fide or analogia relationis. Um what is happening in dialectical theology that both Balthazar and Shavara would consider an error is to make God an absolute transcendent over and against the being of the world. And this is what you might see in uh, Calvinism in the sense that human act- if, if Calvinism is fatalistic, so if you have a real strong Calvinism, then oh. human actions don't actually have any consequence the being of the world doesn't really have any consequence teleologically in God's plan and everything is grounded in God's will and this mandate that was given uh, before the foundations of the earth. So that what you have in a dialectical theology that wants to pit God in that sense over and against the being of the world is a God who negates the being of the world. And Shavara will call that theopanism. So he thinks the analogia intus is a way, a middle way, that neither falls, it's a middle way between univocity and equivocity, that neither falls into the error of pantheism, nor does it fall into the error of theopanism. And then he'll describe and condition the term in and through talking about theology's relationship to philosophy, to how the entis is present in the works of Augustine and Pseudo-Dionysius and Aquinas, to how the Analogia Entis captures the spirit of the fourth ladder in council, which I think is in the 1200s, early 1200s, and then also how it is sort it, it's like a almost inherent notion if you're going to do Christian metaphysics.
0: Uh, and he would say, so, "Let Let me, uh, let me uh, and I may be drawing you down here with my, my uh, lack of understanding, but when, you, when you're thinking dialectic, I mean, I immediately think of Hegel, and I think of Hegel as a kind of maybe a misunderstanding, but at least an extension of Luther. that what you're getting in a, a reformed understanding that taken you know through a Hegelian idea is that this dialectic is at play, and that Bart then, at least in the early Bart, his dialectical theology is really just a, a a kind of uh uh hegelianism uh you know gone bad that it is the pitting of of you know uh, being against nothingness or heaven against earth or uh and so when we, when you're using the the word dialectic is that the proper frame of reference
1: yeah i i mean i think it is of course you just have to be careful because there are people who read hegel um well actually i think the earliest hegelians would have fallen in more into the pantheistic category than the, the theopanistic category so that i know now you know in the 20th century there's a reading of hegel that makes dialectic primary rather than synthesis synthesis primary but I, that's not at least how early Hegelians would have read Hegel. And how Bart would have read Hegel, I'm not for sure. So my guess, just because of where he lands historically, is that he would have had, his teachers would have had more of an affinity with reading Hegel as making the synthesis primary, and it is a falling into a pantheism rather than a theopanism.
0: What is, uh, 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 clarify again the distinction, what is theopanism as a distinct from pantheism?
1: So theopanism, and the way I think that Bart is doing—if Bart is doing it—is it, certainly the way a dialectical theology could function: is to make God transcendent in such a way that God's being is going, but it's transcendent in a univocal way. So we're understanding all of God's attributes univocally and just saying they're transcendent. That that would negate the being of the world. So if God. Um, uh, you know just take all powerful omnipotent which isn't really a uh, attribute of God in the same sense of his love or wisdom but this is a problem with univocity as you begin to think that it is and you say that what God's omnipotence means is just a transcendent power but that power is the same type of power that we would understand Uh it would mean that if God acts then there's no room for human action or there's no significance to human action and there is a way of doing dialectical theology. Again, if Bart, I think Bart really is falling into this early on, but he's inconsistent enough that you can already see the trajectory uh, that is going to come into play in the church dogmatics, that that would reduce the being of the world to an insignificance, to a meaninglessness, Uh if you're thinking metaphysically, and that God is going to be so primary that you know, nothing else is. There's
0: a, just a kind of absolute futility here. That's right. Uh, that's right. That, uh, that certainly there in Hegel, and of course, my, my understanding of Hegel is always through Zizek, which I, I'm sort of aware that's probably not <laughs> the right reading of Hegel, but at least that's the way I read Hegel and what you have in Zizek is is almost
1: pure nihilism. Yes, that's right. If you're gonna, it's making a dialectic primary, and that is how I think you know G. Jack reads Hegel. So that's that's right. But what? So I think that would be the problem. And what you're saying mechanism. is
0: that's not that's on the same order as Reformed theology. Reformed theology is is on the same order as a kind of atheistic materialistic nihilism.
1: Yeah, yeah. I realize how offensive that is. <laughs> so I wasn't going <laughs> I wasn't gonna come out and say it, but uh, I'm afraid. I'm afraid that a consistent Calvinism would do that. Now, as you've made the comment that sometimes we're blessedly inconsistent. Mm-hmm. So, you know, perhaps there is hope. But uh, yes, I think that's right. And that sort of captures these two ends. So that the Analogia Entis, in the way Shavara is developing it, is to say that neither of those things are the case. Both of those things are manifest in modern theologies. But let's steer a course that is going to avoid uh, either pantheism or theopanism, he doesn't just think the analogius is a middle way between those two things. He thinks it's a middle way between the univocal theology or equivocal theology that sometimes gives rise to those errors. And so that it is a way of thinking about God that respects the patristic idea of God, uh, theology needing to be apophatic. Meaning, if we say positive things about God, we probably don't understand what we're saying. So there is a negative way of approaching the being of God, just saying what God is not. But we're not left there with Aquinas, and the Analogia intus doesn't leave us there either, because there's even a better way of approaching, uh, the you know talking about God or God talk, Theo talk, uh, as an analogy that is then sharpened with those negations. That's what Aquinas is doing. He thinks we can say really meaningful things about God. He just thinks that we have to understand that they don't apply univocally. And so that's, in one sense, that's all Shavara is saying. But he's going to then develop that as he applies it to what is the conversation between theology and philosophy. And in that sense, it would be that philosophy is going to get some things right, and actually, philosophy is going to get a lot right if it serves theology. So it is sort of the radical orthodoxy notion or the medieval notion that well, philosophy is the handmaid to theology. Again, I, this is just offensive to modern sensibilities, mm. but uh, you know, that's what he's describing. He will then talk about how it's just implicit in the work of Augustine and Dionysius and Aquinas and it is, then, really a conversation about how does our language correspond to God. And it's, it's the way of analogy. He thinks, though, that that expresses something deeper ontologically. So that we can talk about what it means for us to have being as created being in a way that is similar. And this is why it's meaningful. That it's similar to God's being. It's an imitation of God's being, perhaps. But if you ever focus on a similarity, then you have to realize that it's similar in an ever greater dissimilarity. So he thinks there is no way of, you know, within human nature of closing this gap.
0: Uh
1: Uh, A gap is probably a bad metaphor, but there's no way of closing the difference between infinite uncreated being and finite created being. Well, that's what Christians have always expressed, at least in the patristic time period. So then we might think, well, what's the big idea here? Why is this important? But when you manifest that in a doctrine like the obediential potency, which says that we have an openness to God, That God can work in our lives in such a way that we still have free will, that our actions still have consequences, but that he can bring us into his grace and into the life of the Trinity in such a way that we will experience uh, the vision of God, which all they mean by that is a friendship with God, a union with God that is dynamic and ever-growing into eternity. Shavara has a phrase that I think is great. He says it's eternal. No, he says it's limitless service to God. So that's what he thinks the beatific vision is. So it's not a static vision of any sort. The obediential potency takes a way of respect is a way of talking about our salvation that respects all of these metaphysical nuances that allow us to have a traditional and orthodox understanding of who God is, a traditional orthodox understanding of who humans are, but is also a way then to do a, uh, a theology which confesses that, is Christocentric in the sense that Christ is the only instance of uh, the full manifestation of the obediential potency actualized in a being that the human nature was in inhypostas- hypostasis and hypothesized in the divine person of the son of God taken up so that we could all be redeemed. in as much as we have communion uh, with Christ and that this then is the eschatological vision, or this is the, Uh, working towards this is the way that is the teleological uh, fulfillment of what creation is to be Mm -hmm. and is already becoming. So I think it's a a super important idea in that it's a re-entry, even in the secular world that we live in, into a robust and full uh, account of Christian orthodoxy, which you simply just don't have at the end of the 19th century in either Protestantism or Catholicism.
0: Let me take a a, a right turn here, um, or hopefully it's not a left turn. That uh, <laughs> James Cone, I think it was this past week, passed away, and uh, of course James Cone uh, is it brings a kind of indictment against certain forms of theology that. He's, you know he's saying, well you people are you, know, you white people are out there talking about whether there was a universal flood or while well, they're lynching you know blacks in, in the in the South. Uh, his point is that that theology can float free of mm-hmm. uh, the, the issues that it needs to be addressed that theology can empty itself out, <clears throat> into abstractions and technicalities and and make itself, uh, to, to use the word, impotent. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm not saying that about this conversation. In other words, I think this conversation uh, directly relates to a political engagement, to a Christian political engagement, to a Christian uh a confrontation with real world evil and that's precisely the context that i think we that uh we, we need to set it in understanding the, the situation of bart you know in in nazi germany and uh the situation that they're facing that is they're they're having this discussion uh, not because they're, they're floating off into some uh, airy, you know, kind of technical theological understanding, but because they've witnessed the unfolding of the Holocaust, the great evil of the, the 20th century. And Bart is, I think, going to rightly lay it at the feet of theology gone bad. And so I think that th- that this discussion then is then an attempt to recover an orthodoxy that has failed the 20th century, and I think continues to fail in the 21st century, that we have an evangelical Christianity, we have a a Christianity that continues to give itself over to evil, uh, precisely because, in some way, there is not a right understanding of who God is and who we are, you want to jump in there and explain then how the rubber meets the road in this cuff
1: yeah yeah no i I think that you're right um, in the sense that what happens in the you know the secularism. Of the twentieth century is also a negation, and I mean you're, you'd be able to talk about this more than me uh, with Zizek, but you get a bit of a negation of uh, a finite being. So, an absolute materialism taking to its fi- fullest extent ceases to see the value in human beings, and so that you can. You can you fashion for yourself a God that stands over and against what we are. And I think of this as just reductionistic naturalism that says, um, you know, this is the world is all there is. But in some way, that leads us to thinking that people don't have any value so that there's no innate value to the human beings that are the Jews or the Slavs or uh, the Polish people or any of the people that the Nazis were willing to put in their concentration camps and their death camps.
0: And it's Good. it's not just an atheistic Marxist materialism or a, or a, a fascism, but your point I think is well taken that a reformed theology is actually on the order of this kind of nihilism, and this is showing itself in the failed ethics of a uh Uh, you know, uh, 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 evangelicalism and uh, evangelicalism may, may be the wrong term there. I think it's, it's partly that, but it's this, this theology that has unwittingly departed from uh, an Orthodox understanding.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so. The, um, what you end up with is, um, I, you could see this in liberal, the classical liberalism of the 19th century, which is what leads into World War I, which is sort of a naive, uh, you know, we're all, we'll all be fine. It's, it really does fit along more of the pantheistic uh, notions that Shavar is describing in the sense that, you know, humanity, culture, those are sort of stand-ins for God. You see this continuing in the theology of Tillich, you know, Tillich's theonomy. It's not that we're ordered to a, you know, theology isn't something of its own that is ordering us towards a transcendent God. We have to see the transcendent God within a greater depth dimension of our own culture. Yeah, (laughs) Just. Uh, in a way, that that is sort of the pantheistic notion. And I think it leads to the same place. You can wage war, but it is a little bit more naive because you think in some way that you're going to be affecting cultural change that is good. Okay. On the other end of that spectrum is just to say, well, this is all that there is. It's more of a Nietzschean strain that uh, we need to throw off these kind of abstract theological notions that would try to give value to every human being. I mean, why would you want to live in a world like that? It's obviously not the case biologically or evolutionarily. Uh, evolutionarily, we have uh, the survival of the fittest. And so if you're going to be fit, you can have throw off your slave morality and go make yourself a king. Go make yourself, a, um, you know, in some way, uh, you're going to rule over life. Mm-hmm. So I think that, you know, thinking of James Cohn's point, there is a theological conversation that cuts right to the heart of these things because it uh, makes us view each other in relation to God in such a way that we begin to realize that, uh, you know, humans are valuable and have dignity. And this is mainly because we are open to a relationship with God that will make us like God. Uh, so it is... That's intelligible in and of itself, but it finds its fulfillment in a supernatural end, and I, I think that's what's being described. but it, you can have other theological conversations that would just justify genocide or um, you know, wars where you're committing atrocities, and that was just chemical warfare or whatever, you know XY Z.
0: that's Cohn's indictment. Of you know uh, Niebuhr, the the you know the the great irony of the you know the twentieth century is that Niebuhr is the darling of of you know a kind of liberal theology, but it's also a kind of accommodationist theology that would in some way lend itself to the idea that culture is the mode in which God is working out His purposes. That is a se- a kind of secular notion of culture. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and I think you could bring Cohn's indictment against Niebuhr to bear then. In other words, well, what what is the alternative? You know, what uh, that this notion that in, you know, presidents and kings and sovereign powers in some way uh, are presumed to be acting on behalf of God and that the eternal purposes of God in some way are reduced to the framework of. You know, those two things do come together, but not in the sense of the historical outworking of humans, you know, secular culture or human governments, but in and through the outworking of who Christ is specifically. And I think that's that's the 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 thing that is uh that in a, a kind of theological liberalism, and I think this is what theological liberalism ironically shares with a fundamentalism is that in some way uh, that there is a, a relinquishing, there is a kind of a relinquishing, a kind of giving in to the futility uh, in, in, in both instances to the futility of this world. And so what you're describing is an understanding that can put itself into place as a counter-narrative uh but giving rise to an uh, an understanding that will, in fact, uh, uh, you know, def- defend itself against uh, real world evil.
1: Mm-hmm. Am, am, yeah, no, I think so. Yeah. I, I mean,
0: isn't that the value of this conversation?
1: Yes. Yeah. So I think there is, and you know, it's not really surprising then that the confessional theologies that you get in the second half of the 20th century now and the 21st century, if you're thinking of uh, going back to like Lindsbeck and uh, Fry, are on a trajectory towards creating somebody like Stanley Hauerwas, who is just you know, an out-and-out pacifist, or even in radical orthodoxy, which has more, of I guess, a polyphony of voices on the issue of nonviolence, but is at least engaged in uh, the social. And realizing that there's meaning to be had in human communities and relationships, and uh, the, the secular is not a subtraction story in the sense that if you just take away God and take away these theological conversations, then you're just left with what's really real, and we can talk about that. But actually, uh, the secular is an ideological myth that has created a failed community, and one that is you know willing to do ever increasing uh, violent acts to each other. So I, I think that's key, that there is a type of theological conversation that is necessary. There are other types of theological conversations that can be abstractions.
0: This is, I I've, I've recently have been dealing with a bit with Giorgio Agamben's uh, recent work on Pilate and the trial of Jesus. And in some way, I think this ties in. That prior to Christ, you have the notion that secular states, which, in fact, are not called, in other words, the very notion of secular, of course, doesn't exist, that that states like Rome or, or Caesar have a theological ground, that is, Caesar can claim mm-hmm. uh, to exercise power to crucify people, not because of some legal or some, uh, but because he simply has the raw power of being uh, uh, the emperor that is ultimately grounded in his, you know, claims to deity or in his, you know, he he is the literal Prince of Peace. He he calls himself Almighty God. These realms of power, the principalities and powers, have justified, legitimized themselves through theological claims. Mm -hmm. But with the trial of Jesus, uh, you have the the questioning, the suspension. You know, Pilate uh, is he, in fact, encounters and seems to truly encounter uh, the the royal Jesus. You know, in his mocking of him, putting yet nonetheless he he attaches the the you know, notion. Here's the King of the Jews. Here's the and the Jews say, well, wait a minute. In saying this, uh, you yourself, Pilate, are going against Caesar. We have no king but Caesar. They commit blasphemy. They, in and through their notion that they're going to defeat, you know, uh, Pilate, they themselves appeal to the secular power. In other words, they abandon their own religion. In the name of a state, uh, given uh, full reign, Mm -hmm. they relinquish notions of a messianic king, so that they might have a a secular king. I mean, in a sense, this is the end point of their uh, that their demand to have a king. Well, ultimately, what happens when you have a king uh, is that uh, the theocracy is no longer. Uh, the case. And of course, this is the notion that we have in the church is that, that it is a true theocracy, that God reigns, that God rules, he's the proper judge, and that human judgments are suspended. And that seems to be partly what we're getting at in this conversation. That in a right understanding of who God is and who we are, we can no longer presume to pass notions of eternal judgment and salvation. I mean that's really what you're, you know, that's what the Niebuhrs, that's what I'm afraid that uh, uh, is happening in a, you know, national socialism and a marxism, but in a strange way even in a in a the- uh, e- evangelicalism gone bad that uh in some way uh the presumption is either to claim an eternal frame of re- reference for your own or to you know make it completely irrelevant and elsewhere. And of course, the point is, no, the eternal, the salvific is yeah. brought into history, not in a realm of power that we can apprehend, or a realm of understanding that we have full access to, but one in which we acknowledge Jesus, that Christ is King and Lord.
1: Yeah, I think that's actually a really good summary. So that... Um, it is, a, and maybe that's why it is so radical at this point, the sense that it is a shift away from an anthropocentrism that we are, you know, we're not the center of everything. <laughs> and so that we find human being or humanity finds true meaning in a relation that is governed um, and revealed through Christ as king, prophet, priest and king, you could say.
0: That there is a, uh, you know, that I think what happens subsequent to the trial of Jesus, subsequent, you know, that what happens in the Christian age is that where previous to Christ, someone could not point their finger at Caesar in his obliteration of, you know, the slave class, an obliteration of people through crucifixion there was almost an incapacity to point the finger and say this is evil but now that uh that is that that notion is no longer the case we all now recognize the claims to sovereignty on the part of kings and states or even a kind of private sovereignty of my heart uh in its notion that it can Uh, dispose of certain forms of life that it can, you know, presume to pass capital, you know, punishment, either literally or theoretically, Uh, that now we can point the finger and say, this is evil. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that that's what Bart is saying is relinquished in this, what he's calling the analogiantis. But of course, what we've said is, no, it's just a, it's a, it's a failed uh, uh, theological understanding. No one that, Yeah. And so I think, go ahead.
1: Okay. Well, I was going to say, and I think that to conclude, you know, a part of the way the story ends is that Barton Balthazar remained friends. And I think both of their theology uh, just is all the better for it, for that ongoing conversation. And so it is a type of embodied communal change that happens in Christianity. So where we would see absolute differences, that actually there's there's a place for cooperation. There's a place uh, where people can move and grow. And it's always that dynamic growth ever towards uh, infinite God. And so the, the story does have a happy ending. Oddly enough, I mean, you know, they go through their their friendship begins during World War Two and they're debating these things. And you can imagine how uh, the practical is all the more practical when you see that level of evil happening around you and you're aware of it. Uh And so it wasn't for them as if they were just debating abstract ideas. Uh, I mean, they, I think, literally were probably laying the blame uh, for the Holocaust or for uh, just the warfare that was going on at the feet of a German culture that at least perceived of itself as being Christian, but had obviously failed. And so it, it it's hard for us, I think, to quite capture how uh, how real the theological conversation was uh-huh. for them in, in, in that moment in time in which they lived.
0: That no one can be lynched on a tree ever again, and that we presume that they are silenced, and that's always the presumption yeah. of lynchings. that's always the presumptions of genocide. Uh, yeah. that after Christ, no the the risen king speaks, and he uh, proposes that that what you do to any of these, to the dispossessed, the poor, the, the the stranger the you know that what you do to these you're doing
1: to me and I'm the king and sure. I'm the king of the universe. Yeah, that's good. So well, we had we had quite a conversation and also applied it practically. <laughs> that's a wonderful job. Uh, I'm glad we could do this. Oh yes, me too. Thank you.